All right, you can turn to chapter 6 in the Confession of Faith of the fall of man, of sin, and of the punishment thereof. I'll read the chapter and then we'll look at it in a bit of detail. So chapter 6, beginning in paragraph 1. Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life had he kept it, and threatened death upon the breach thereof, yet he did not long abide in this honor. Satan using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purpose to order it to his own glory. Our first parents by this sin fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. They, being the root, and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed, and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation." being now conceived in sin, and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. From this original corruption, whereby we are whole, utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. This corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin. Amen. Well, just a couple of comments in terms of the location of this chapter in the Confession of Faith. We know, as we have considered from previous weeks, that the, cha uh, the Confession starts of, uh, with chapter 1 of the Holy Scriptures, then moves on to God and the Holy Trinity, and then His decree. Remember, that's the eternal purpose of God relative to all things outside of Himself. So add extra or those works outside of God. So the decree sets the stage for all that follows in terms of God's dealings with man. And then after that, you see creation and providence. We might at this point expect something concerning Christ, but the confession waits till chapter 8 to sort of set the stage for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the fact that there is redemption coming, which the confession announces in the chapter on the decree, he, uh, the confession talks about predestination unto life, talks about reprobation, and then creation, providence, and then again it sets the stage in terms of chapter 6 and 7, and then it brings to full fruition the work of Christ the mediator in terms of his redemptive work on behalf of the Father who sent him. So chapter 6 basically answers the question why the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in his first advent. Chapter 7 sets the co uh, covenantal context for the work of the Redeemer and then as I said chapter 8 deals in detail with the work of the Redeemer. So chapter 6 deals with the fall of man, sin and of the punishment thereof. The Westminster Shorter Catechism the question is asked, what is sin? And the answer is sin 
sin is any want or lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Now, they didn't make that up. First John tells us that sin is lawlessness. It is a failure to comply with the word of God. There's the sin of omission, where we omit to do the good that we are called to do. That's the lack of conformity unto. And then there's the sin of commission, where we do those things that God prohibits. So there's uh, both a positive and a negative way that we can sin against God. I don't mean positive in a positive way, but you get what I mean. We can do it by not doing what he commands. We can also do it by uh, doing what he forbids or, or prohibits. And as we read through the Ten Commandments, we're supposed to make those inferences. When the commandment tells us, for instance, you shall not murder, we know conversely we should do everything we can to promote life. When the confession says you shall not commit adultery, we should conversely imply that we're supposed to protect the sanctity of marriage and conduct ourselves sexually in a way that God calls us unto. So when we come to this particular chapter, it first deals with the fall in the plan of God in paragraph one, which we should accept or expect rather. So chapter three of God's decree, the question comes, well, if God decreed all things and he's a good God, then why does the world look like such a mess? Well, the confession deals with that. But as well in the, in the chapter on providence, we know that God is over all his creatures and all their actions. So we need to understand, and this chapter makes it clear, that even that first fall was orchestrated by God to accomplish his, purpose, uh, purpose, uh, his perfect purpose. So we've got the fall and the plan of God in paragraph one, and then the result of the fall in paragraphs two to five. So we'll look at that in in order here. So let's look first at the fall in the plan of God. Notice in paragraph one, the general setting. Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life had he kept it and threatened death upon the breach thereof. So the context is the garden and you can turn there to Genesis chapter two. Genesis chapter two, we see what theologians call a covenant of works. Now that phrase is absent from this paragraph, but the concept is present in this paragraph. When we follow through this paragraph, we see did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit. So there is a covenant of works, and there have been those who have criticized the, the London Confession of Faith, the first and the second, and said, well, they didn't affirm the covenant of works. Well, that's not true. The covenant of works is here, in chapter 6, paragraph 1, but the covenant of works is also in chapter 7, paragraphs 1 and 3, chapter 19, paragraph 6, and then chapter 20, paragraph 1. So the argument basically goes, especially with the second London confession, that when the divines came to pen this confession, they just slavishly followed the Presbyterian confession, the Westminster. They just did exactly what, what those guys did. It really doesn't reflect the contours of particular Baptist theology. It absolutely positively does reflect the contours of particular Baptist theology. They followed that because it was a wonderful and clear statement concerning God's law, including the covenant of works. So they embraced it, they taught it, they understood it, and it undergirds many of the sections in our confession of faith. But with reference to the covenant of works, notice what we find there in Genesis chapter 2, specifically at verse 15. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
Now, there would be those who say, well, the word covenant's not here, so therefore there's no covenant present. Well, again, the language covenant doesn't need to be present as long as the concept of covenant is present. The word trinity is not in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, but the doctrine of the trinity is there in full blazing glory. Same with the language in 2 Samuel 7. It doesn't say covenant that God makes with David, but later re Revelation, Psalms 89 and 132, indicate that it was in fact a covenant. So the fact or the, 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 the absence of the word covenant does not mean the absence of the concept of covenant. If everything necessary for covenant is present, then we rightly imply that there is a covenant. So basically we have the covenant elements. You have uh, parties, God and man, you have promise, you have condition, and you have penalty attached to the breach of this particular law. And so the confession locates Adam and Eve in this garden setting and underscores the reality that God gave them a righteous law. God called them to a particular activity and as well threatened death upon the breach thereof. Now again, by way of inference, we can rightly conclude that this promise or this threat of death also necessitates the promise of life on the condition that Adam and Eve successfully obey. So again, we need to make sure that we understand what we're doing when we interpret scripture. The fact that God says, the day that you eat, dying you shall die, we rightly infer that the day that you don't eat, living you shall live. They would have been blessed, they would have been confirmed, they would have been you know, given that eternal life that God had promised by way of covenant. So when we look at this first fall, it puts it in the context of creation, in the, in the context of the crea uh, uh, original creation. And then note the particular description that we have. It says in paragraph one, yet he did not long abide in this honor. Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation. So one of the other things we ought to observe is that the, the, the 17th century divines, our forefathers, and in terms of the particular Baptist faith, took this section of scripture literally. They didn't just say, well, it's a fable, it's a myth, it's a story, it's just designed there to give us some religious instruction. There's no indication whatsoever that the divines thought that, that they looked at it as a, a religious metaphor. They basically trace out Genesis chapters 2 and 3 relative to this argument. How do we know that man sinned? Because the Bible tells us so. It underscores their original context, it underscores the covenant of works, and then it gets to chapter 3, paragraph Paragraph one, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, chapter three, verse one in the in the scriptures. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So to argue for the fall of man, they go back to the original creation. They go back to Adam and Eve. They go back to where the apostle Paul goes. And we ought to see that in that, they accept what is written as in fact, the word of the living God and authoritative for us. So the occasion of the fall was Satan. And again, if we're thinking in terms of the confession at large, we know that God is the first cause, but that doesn't mitigate the reality of second causes that we find in chapter five of divine providence. So we see the instrumentality of the devil here, Satan using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation. God said, don't eat. If you eat, you will die. Die 
dying, you will die. And that's precisely what we find that happens in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. So then notice what the confession goes on to say. All of this was consistent with his plan. Again, we're not dealing with random haphazard events in a, in a chance environment. We're not dealing with blind fate. We're dealing with the God who's described to us in chapter 2. We're dealing with the God who has this authority to decree all things according to his own purpose and plan. We're dealing with the God who created the world and all things in it. And we're dealing with the God of chapter 5 who has this purpose and plan to work out his salvation in the lives of people. So this is what the confession now says. It says, which God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purpose to order it to his own glory. So when we consider it of divine providence, we recognize that there's bad things in this world. I mean, all we have to do is look outside. Well, we don't even have to look outside. If you know your own heart, you'll understand there's bad things in this world. It's not just the Middle East. It's not just Ukraine. It's not just Myanmar. It's not just Ottawa. It's not just Washington, D.C. But you don't have to go far to find out the world is chaotic. You don't have to go far to find out that there's a lot of mess in the present evil age. In fact, that's what scriptures call it, the present evil age. Well, when we consider that, there are times when even the people of God are vexed and they wonder, well, why are these bad things happening? Why is it the case that we have this altogether good God, and yet in many respects the world looks like a mess? And again, there have been those challengers, challengers in the history of the world that have proposed the, the basic syllogism. If God is good, or if God is powerful and good, then why is there evil that exists? And that hinders the people of God. They, they wonder, well, I don't know how to make heads or tail out of that. When we considered of divine providence, we looked at Asaph in Psalm 73. Asaph reveals to us this very real challenge in his own heart and life. He doesn't you know, hide this. He, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, declares to us that, that axiomatic proposition at the very beginning, God is good to Israel, to such as fear him. And then he mentions, as for me, I nearly stumbled. When I looked at the wicked, I saw them abound. When I looked at the righteous, I saw them suffer. So he looks at the world about him and he sees the chaos, the sin, the misery, and all the, the, the wrestledness, and he asks, or he's, he's wrestling with this until he comes into the sanctuary. So the Bible and the confession following the Bible doesn't say there's really no evil out there. You know, that, that's not really what you think it is. The Bible tells us there is evil out there, but God has ordained it even for his own glory. The classic examples in Scripture, the Joseph narratives in the book of Genesis. You meant this for evil, but God overruled it for good. We've got Cyrus, king of Persia, raised up by God, called the Messiah of God to bring the, the heat to bear upon the Babylonians and to provide a context where Judah can return to her land. And then, of course, the, the greatest criminal activity in the history of man was the execution of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says on the day of Pentecost, this was the predetermined plan and purpose of God. The apostles praying, recognize in Acts chapter 4 that Pontius Pilate and Herod did whatever God's hand had predetermined for them to do. So the confession doesn't shrink back. And I think that's very commendatory on the part of the confession. I would not want to subscribe a confession that apologized for God or tried to defend God or tried to iron out the wrinkles in God or tried to say, well, you know, that's not really the case. No, the confession heads it or, or faces it straight on because 
the Bible faces it straight on. And the Bible affords to us the rationale behind the evil that exists. God is overruling even that which is disgusting to carry out his own purposes in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the confession uses the language of permission here. If you go back to chapter 5, we noticed in paragraph 4 that not by a bare permission. And then over, uh, or no, that, that's the only other place. So, so how, do we, how do we deal with that? Which God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit. Now, that language isn't bad. It's not wrong. It's not, you know, maybe the best. I, I don't know. I, I just, you know, it, 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 it doesn't... It doesn't get God off the hook if that's what we're looking for. If, a God, if God permits something that he's able to stop, he's not, you know, somehow off the hook. Sometimes people try to, try to get God off the hook. Well, well, you know, God allows this or God permits that, almost as if to soften the blow. Because it seems a bit odd to say even the wicked things that have happened are according to the plan and purpose of God that he's orchestrating to bring out his glory and the good of his, all of his people. We're, we're a little bit hesitant to admit that sometimes. And so we pick language that seems a little bit more conciliatory, a little bit less harsh. Uh, again, you know, he permitted or he allowed it. Well, again, a God who allows certain things is still responsible for the things that he allows. The God who permits certain things is still responsible for the things that he permits. So again, I'm not sure exactly why the language permission here and not permission in 5.4, but I think Gordon Clark helps in terms of a bit of an explanation here. He's got a little commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith that for the most part I think is really good. I think if you're interested in studying the confession, uh, there's good stuff on our Baptist confession. James Renahan recently has produced probably the, you know, the treatment on it uh, that's in print right now. It goes to the original source. It goes to what they were thinking. He's an originalist like uh, you'd want in a constitutional uh, scholar or lawyer. So that's probably the big daddy that I would recommend in terms of uh, confession study. But the Presbyterians have done some good work too. A.A. Hodge is very good on the Westminster. And, and so is Gordon Clark. It's more accessible, more at a popular level. And it's under the title, or it used to be, What Presbyterians, or What Do Presbyterians Believe? And again, it's just an exposition of the Westminster Confession. But he says here, most people would say that the word permit is a softer expression than the word ordain. Some would even say that permission hath put sin out of God's control. But we cannot permit anyone to suppose that chapter 6 contradicts chapters 3 and 4, probably 5, uh, right? I don't think he's, I may have written it wrong. Not being infallible, the men at Westminster may have fallen into slight, some slight inconsistency somewhere, but it can hardly be maintained that they anywhere contradicted the doctrine of the divine decree. It is better to understand the word permit as a merely convenient linguistic expression. There's nothing wrong with that. We talk about anthropopathisms and anthropomorphisms, and we use the language in the manner of men. Well, those are linguistic expressions that help us to arrive at truth. Permit again is still God is responsible even if it's just a bare permission, even if he just allows it. So, so I think he's, his point is good. They're not upbraiding everything that chapter 3 says and everything that chapter 5 says. 
He goes on to say, it is better to understand that the, wor uh, the word permit is merely a convenient linguistic expression. Indeed, permission as it is used in human affairs is inappropriate to the divine omnipotence and sovereignty. Of course, it is quite true to say that God permitted Adam to sin. But if by this we intend to deny that God foreordained Adam's sin, we are quite mistaken. God foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Again, chapter 3 makes that evident, makes that clear, as does the Bible. You don't find scripture saying where God, you know, musing says, oh, I just can't believe this. This creation has it's gotten out of control. No, he's decreed the beginning from the end. The prophet Isaiah tells us, Ephesians 1.11, whatsoever comes to pass. That's the language of Holy Scripture. So any questions or comments in terms of the fall and the plan of God in paragraph 1? Before we go to the effect or result of the fall. No? All right, good, excellent. So notice first, in terms of the result of the fall, the, the representative nature of Adam's sin. We talk about Christ being our representative. We talk about Christ being our, 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 a public person. Well, Jesus is the last Adam. Adam was the first Adam. Israel was an Adam-like type as well. And, and Jesus is the last Adam. So notice what we see there in paragraph 2, this representation. Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and, par uh, and parts of soul and body. The Bible literally places the blame on Adam. It talks about Eve's sin in 1 uh, Timothy chapter 2. She transgressed and took the fruit in that prohibition against women teaching uh, men in the context of the local church. But the onus is upon Adam as a public person and representative for all of his posterity. And here you can turn to the books, uh, book of Romans. Romans chapter 5 makes this very clear that we're dealing with two men, or God deals with two men in the history of the world. Adam the first and Adam the last. And specifically at verses 18 and 19. Notice in Romans 5, well, look back at uh, Romans 5.14. It says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. That's a dense piece from 12 to, to 17. It does certainly bear on our discussion here, but not for right now. But one thing to notice in verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam didn't become a type when Paul wrote that. Adam was a type in the garden. God always knew what was happening. God always knew what he was doing. God always established it in, a, in an order that was consistent with his eternal decree and purpose. So, so Adam doesn't become a type when Paul tells us that he was. He was always typical. He was always pointing forward. He was always someone that, that existed to prefigure the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, types in the Old Testament are persons, uh, they could be events, they could be buildings, the temple, for instance, the tabernacle, they could be various things that prefigure and typify the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the type is that announcement, and the anti-type is in the place of, not in contrast to, but in the place of. So there is correspondence, but the type is not the anti-type. We need to make sure we understand that. The type does what it's supposed to do to give us information about the anti-type, the anti-type Christ 
Christ comes and therefore he fulfills what was spoken prior. So we need to appreciate that Adam was a typical figure, a public person, a representative for his posterity. Now notice in verse 18, and this by the way is covenant or federal theology. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous." Now, the language there made, it's probably better to understand it, not in the realm of transformation. They're not going to get better. They're not going to be more godly. That is subsequent in terms of justification. We then go into the life of sanctification where we hopefully progress and where we hopefully become more and more like the Lord Jesus. But the being made here is constitutive. It's forensic. It is legal in nature. There is the doctrine of imputation that lay behind this. So in Adam all die, and in Christ all are made alive. They're constituted by God's grace, by God's justice. And then turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, another passage that shows the public nature of Adam, the fact that he was our representative, and by the reality, or according to the reality that we have in here in our confession, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. So then notice in 1 Corinthians 15, specifically at verses 21 and 22. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So you see, God deals with us in Adam or in the last Adam. People say, well, why doesn't he give that proba probation and test to everybody? Because he's God. He's infinitely wise and good, and this is the way he decreed to do it. So Adam stood for his posterity. Christ stands for his posterity. So public person, representation, that's covenant theology, and that's what the, the, the divines are speaking to here. But then back to paragraph 2, notice what it says. All becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. What do we call that? Does anybody know? Total depravity. Total depravity. That's right. Does total depravity mean we're all as bad as we could be? Are we all Pol Pot? Are we all Stalin? Are we all Hitler? No, we're not all as bad as we could be, but total depravity, I think, is well sort of explained here at the end of paragraph two. Wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. In other words, sin is a, a, a comprehensive problem. It's not just, you know, this, or it's not just that. We've got huge problems when it comes to sin. Even if we're not as bad as Pol Pot, even if we're not as bad as some of the, 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 the wretches in history or in our own present evil age, we are still never the, nevertheless affected by this first fall of Adam. And then that sets the stage for paragraph three. It speaks concerning what we call the doctrine of original sin. Notice, they being the root and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind. Again, representation, public person, Adam, the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed. 
to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. That's a great self-esteem building statement, isn't it? Boy, that makes everybody feel really good about themselves. I'm okay, you're okay. No, we're not okay, and all of us are in this big problem. But why, does the, why do the divines do that? Well, when they trace back the doctrine of total depravity and total inability, they give it to us in all of its gross and gory details. Again, they're setting the stage for chapter 7, God's covenant. It's into this mass of corruption and disgustingness that God has purpose by way of covenant to rescue his people. And then in that context of covenant, who's the mediator? Who's the public person? Who's the uh, representative? Who's going to do what or, or undo what Adam did? Well, Christ the mediator in chapter 8. And then the application of the redemptive benefit that comes from our Lord Jesus Christ is elucidated or explained in the, co in the confession from that point onward. Not, not to the end, but certainly in that section, what we call the ordo salutis. So in order to understand and appreciate the glory of Christ the mediator, it's helpful for us to understand our origin, our corruption, our situation, and that's what the confession is doing. So they being the root, and again, by God's appointment, this isn't chance, this wasn't, you know, when Adam sinned, God said, oh, wow, what am I going to do now? Well, plan B, I'll, I'll have him be the representative. No, this was all purposed and planned by God in order to bring about his, his purpose to save us from our sins. So then it says the guilt of the sin was imputed. You can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The scriptures speak of the doctrine of imputation. I've already alluded to that. The, the guilt of Adam's sin is imputed to us. But the, the, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. There's, those are two imputations, but then there's a third. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 deals with that. Notice, it says, For he, that's God the Father, made him, that's Jesus, God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us. Again, that doesn't mean he actually engaged in transgression. He was not made a sinner in the sense that he had lustful looks or he reacted upon it or he engaged in theft or, or he went out and, you know, engaged in idolatry. He was constituted. He was made in the sense of declared. He was, he was uh, 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 reckoned that way. So he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So our sin is imputed to the Savior and his righteousness are punished in the Savior by the Father and then his righteousness is imputed to us. So that imputation of Adam's sin is corrected by the righteousness of the last Adam's work on behalf of his people. So he lives a perfect life in obedience to the Father. He dies as a sacrifice on the cross, and he's raised again the third day. We need the resurrection. We need the death, but we also need that life. We need the imputation of Christ's righteousness so that we can be accepted in him, accepted in the Beloved. And so all of this background sets the stage for all that we find in terms of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then notice back in the confession what it says in paragraph 3, they being the root by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, uh, descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin, 
by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. And again, that's not just, you know, theological, literary flight. This reflects what Scripture says. Turn back to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, with reference to the language being conceived in sin. That sounds pretty hardcore, and it would be pretty hardcore on the part of men that didn't have any data, and they were just supposing that this was the way it was. Well, the data of Scripture tells us that that is precisely what it is. Notice in Psalm 51, and remember Psalm 51, the superscription tells us there in verse 1, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. We're all very uh, mindful of that event. David commits the sin of adultery, then he covers it up by murder, conspiracy to murder. And so David now, in his repentance, has penned this psalm, a psalm that brings great comfort to the people of God because we see God's grace and his mercy and his kindness. But as he traces back his native depravity, notice where he traces it to in Psalm 51, 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, he's not saying the conjugal act between his mother and his father was sin. That's not what's in view here. It's not a necessary evil just to fill the earth. No, it's a blessing given by God. Nothing wrong with conjugal relationship and marriage. That's a blessing. David's not saying that. He's saying, in sin, my mother conceived me. In other words, as soon as David was David, which by the way, he doesn't say, and in sin, my mother conceived a, a mass of cells that, that would later evolve to become me. No, the moment David was conceived, David was David. And as David, he had inherited this original corruption. He had inherited this corrupt nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin. Look over at Psalm 58. Babies are wonderful. Babies smell good, they're cuddly, they're soft. But babies are in Adam. Not but, I shouldn't say it like that, hold them at arm's length as a result. No, but understand their plight. And notice what we find here in Psalm 58. Psalm 58 at verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Again, the Bible presents to us the, the problem of sin in its stark reality. It doesn't fake it. It doesn't try to explain it away. It doesn't say, well, you know, there's a, a whole philosophical... No, no, it tells us straight out what the problem with mankind is. And again, that sets the stage for of God's covenant, of Christ the mediator. Notice as well, though, the confession goes on to say, after being conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath. You can turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, and Paul is highlighting the before picture in terms of our, our salvation. He shows us, again, in all of its vivid and gory detail, what we look like. If we don't get Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, we're not going to stand in awe of Ephesians 2, 4 to 10. If our problem is just a problem of being a little bit lamed or a little bit crippled or a little bit hindered or a little bit hurt, we're not going to appreciate the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as we ought to. But Ephesians 2, 4 to 10 is truly amazing because of the reality of Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And that's what he says. Notice in verse 1, And you he made alive 
who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And notice Paul isn't wagging his finger at the Ephesian Christian saying, you wretches. Notice Paul in verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. In other words, the apostle Paul understood what sin was, how would he not have? He penned Romans, he penned Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. He, he knew this experientially in his own life in Romans chapter 7 when he's highlighting the goodness of God's law as it's used lawfully. He says, I would not have known the, my lust unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Paul includes himself in that group. 1 Timothy chapter 1, this is a faithful saying. It's worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save what? Sinners. And then he says, of whom I am chief. So Paul's not saying this is a problem out there for you irreligious. This is a problem out there for you, you Gentiles. Remember in Romans chapter 1, he starts with Gentiles in Romans 1, 18 to 30, uh, 1, uh, 18 to 32. But then what does he do? He turns the canons against the Jews in chapter 2. You're no better. You've got the oracles, you've got the law, and yet you continue to breach those, continue to transgress those. And then that brings him to Romans chapter 3 to maintain that all are guilty before God. And then he says, this isn't some new thing. I'm not preaching a new doctrine. He says, this is what the Old Testament says. And he brings together that, that litany of Old Testament scriptures that underscore man's depravity, man's inability, and the necessity for sovereign grace in his redemption and recovery. So notice in verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. There's a man by the name of John Gerstner. John Gerstner was R.C. Sproul's mentor. Uh, he's no longer alive, neither is R.C. Sproul. I don't think as many people know who Gerstner was as they do who Sproul was. I mean, Sproul was you know, a, a, a comet, a, a, a rising star. He was a, a very good popular, a popularizer, popular, what's the word? Popularizer, popularizer, there, that's what Cam said, in terms of Calvinism or the Reformed faith. Well, Gershner was his mentor. And Gershner once made the observation, if you don't get the tea in the tulip, none of the rest makes sense. If you don't get the tea in the tulip, none of the rest makes sense. If you have a problem that man's just a little hindered, then why unconditional election? Why limited atonement? Why irresistible grace? Why, you know, perseverance of the saints and preservation by God? If you understand the nature of sin, then the gospel in all of its vivid glory and beauty and majesty makes perfect sense. If our problem is, is that we just need a little bit of help, then why the cross? Why? Paul says this in, in Galatians 2.21. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. If, if we can achieve this, if we can, with a little help, get to heaven, well then why the cross? Why the, the, the necessity for substitutionary atonement? Notice the confession speaks of being servants of sin. Well, does the Bible say that? Yes, they're simply telling us what Scripture says. John chapter 8 John chapter 8, Jesus' discourse there with the religious leaders specifically. John chapter 8 and verse 31, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, 
If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, or seed, and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Now that's patently false, just at the temporal level. Of course they had been servants. Of course they had been slaves. They were in Egypt. They were in Assyria. They were in Babylon. Now notice what Jesus says in verse 34. Jesus answered them, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So again, when we see a society that, that has all the earmarks of you know, unchecked sin, and that's not liberty. We are not living in a free society. We are living in bondage and corruption, and there's every evidence that God has, in fact, given us up in light of Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28, when man continues in his rebellion. You know, the, the 1960s, especially in the United States, was a time of liberation, the sexual liberation, the sexual revolution. That's bondage, that's death, that's horror. And, and the fruits of it are, are, are coming out now in all of its gory detail. So this whole idea of servants of sin and then subjects of death, does the scriptures teach that or do the scriptures teach that? Romans 6, I mean, all over the place we see it, but Romans chapter 6, very clearly, uh, specifically in verse 23, a passage we're all familiar with. Uh, uh, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, so all of these things are the effects of the public man, Adam, being our representative, transgressing the law of God, and us now covenantally and federally dying in him. There is that conveyance of that nature to us, and that's what the, the scriptures tell us, and then in case, you know, that wasn't enough to make you throw up your, your morning eggs and sausage and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. And, and I think if you get chapter 6, paragraph 3 down, it helps you to understand the world around you. I mean, again, the things that we see are chaotic. The things that we see are evil. The things that we see are wretched. But there is a theological rationale behind it. There is even a philosophical rationale behind it. We may not be able to explain everything. We may not be able to see all the puzzle pieces in place, but we trust in the fact that God does and that he's working all things out ultimately for his own glory and for the good of those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. So, so scripture gives us that rationale. I understand why the world hates it and rejects it and scoffs at it, but I've never quite understood why the Christian does. The Christian has the answers in Scripture. We just have to have the faith to appropriate it and trust in our God. We're not God. We don't know how to operate the world. We don't know how to govern all our creatures and all their actions, but God does. He's infinitely wise. He's, he's everything that chapter 2 says concerning him. So in the final analysis, God's got this, and we rest content in that, and we rest in the, the, the knowledge of the fact that we can, in fact, be still and know that God is God, know that he will be exalted in the earth and among the nations. And that statement in Psalm 46.10 doesn't come in the, you know, when you're sitting at home, you're in your back garden, the birds are singing, you've got a nice warm beverage, your wife is there, everybody's glowing and happy, hair is combed and teeth are brushed and the kids are frolicking. And it comes in the context of, of disorder 
It comes in the context of chaos. It comes in the context of natural phenomena. If the uh, mountains be removed and fall into the sea, or the nations raging against one another, be still and know that I am God. In other words, he has sovereign control and authority over all things. The confession at paragraph 3 doesn't stop there. It doesn't leave us without hope. Paragraph 3, wonderful in terms of its description, hopeless in terms of its you know, indictment, but hopeful with that last statement, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. So we've got the representation uh, or representative nature of Adam's sin, paragraph 2, the doctrine of original sin in paragraph 3, and now notice the effects of original sin in paragraphs 4 and 5. You've got the actual sins committed by sinners in paragraph 4. From this original corruption, this original sin, this nature that, or this uh, imputation of Adam's sin to us, from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made, all, uh, made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. So I think it has well been said. I, I think it was probably sprawl. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. In other words, we have this corrupt nature, and it's from that corrupt nature that all these actual transgressions proceed. So in Adam, all die. So we're dead in Adam. So what happens? We go estranged from the womb, speaking lies as soon as we are born. And that's the connection here from this original corruption whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil do proceed all actual transgressions. So what we find is the doctrine of total depravity. It's already been mentioned. Again, that doesn't mean we're all, you know, the, the, the worst that we could possibly be. I'm not suggesting we're the best we could possibly be, but total depravity doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. That's what the language suggests, and at times people, uh, Christians mainly, that are outside of the reform today, oh, total depravity, what do you mean? I walked an old lady across the street today. I, how can he mean I'm totally depraved, or my neighbor does great things? Again, total depravity means every bit of us is affected by the fall. There's nothing you know, outside of us or part of us that, that hasn't been affected by the fall. And incidentally, when we get to the chapter of God's free will in the confession, it doesn't deny free will. That's a mischaricature of the Reformed tradition. Oh, you guys don't think there's free will. No, we do, but free will is not in a vacuum. It's free for Adam in the garden in a pre-fall situation. There's free will for us in a state of sin where that free will is conditioned by our deceitful and desperately wicked hearts. Then you've got free will in the state of grace, where we now can to will, to, or will to do good. And then you've got the free will in the state of glory, where it's only confirmed to do what's right. So there's not the case where we deny, we deny free will in the sense that, you know, you can be anything you want. No, you can't. If you don't have the mental equipment to be the, well, I guess you can, to be the prime minister. Yeah, that goes against that. But you, you can't necessarily be an astronaut if you're afraid of heights. You, you can't become a believer without divine aid, without divine grace. 
So the argument against free will is an Arminian or Pelagian free will, where the will is not so affected that it can't choose for Jesus. That's not what the scripture says. God makes us willing in the day of his power. Romans 9.16 says it does not depend upon him who wills or him who runs, but upon God who shows mercy. It's God who affects. It's God who changes the heart. It's God who causes us to be born again. And with that now, a new heart brings the ability to will for Jesus in terms of faith. So there is this doctrine of total depravity. I've got several passages listed here. Uh, I won't read them off. If you're interested, just email me and I can cut and paste. But just think about it. In Genesis, God looks at the earth. It's exceedingly corrupt and it's, it's, it's filled with violence. Post-flood, what happens? The intention of man's heart is only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and, and desperately wicked. Uh, uh, Jeremiah the prophet, who, who can change his, you know, can the leopard change his spots or the Ethiopian change his skin? Then can you will to do good? No, without divine aid or without divine grace? So you've got these statements concerning total depravity, but the Bible also teaches total inability. And that has to do with the will. If you turn back to John 6, the basic argument in the Reformed tradition is that the will is conditioned by man's state. The will is conditioned by the heart of man. The, the will is not this autonomous thing that can do whatever it wants. It, it is in uh, a continuum, either in the state of original righteousness, in the state of sin, in a state of grace, or in that state of, of glory. But notice in John 6, 44. So we've got total in a, in a, uh, depravity. We usually focus on that. Man is sinful. All of his parts are affected. But we need to know that the corollary of total depravity is total inability. And so John 6, 44 underscores that. No one can come to me. Notice that. No one can it's an impossibility. You, you can't, unaided by God, unaided by divine grace, unaided by the Holy Spirit, no one can. Now, the no one is extensive and comprehensive. Not, not you, delicate snowflake, not you, person that, that wasn't affected by. No, in Adam all die. And as a result, unless in Christ we live, we're dead in our trespasses and sins and unable. So 644, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, contrary to the Arminian sort of conjecture, he doesn't draw him kicking and screaming and flailing about. Oh, no, I don't want to come and be a recipient of sovereign grace. The drawing is based on God's work, changing the heart, renewing the mind, giving him faith and repentance so that he comes willingly. This is the emphasis in the Psalms. He makes men willing in the day of his power. But then notice as well, uh, John 6, 60. Well, let's pick up at verse 60. John 6, 60, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? Talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, but as well talking about divine sovereignty. And no one can come to him unless the Father who sent him draws him. So notice, there's nothing new under the sun. You preach Calvinism or Reformed theology properly, you're always going to get people saying, that's tough, that's harsh, that seems wrong, it <laughs> seems a bit off. That doesn't seem right. So that's not new. And I think that, you know, in preaching or in witnessing, if we never hear these kinds of arguments, we're probably not preaching or witnessing properly. 
You know, Paul says that, he, you know, uh, that, that, that what shall we say? Is there unrighteousness with God in Romans 9? May it never be. Well, why do you think they ask that? Because Paul's concept of God's sovereignty might lead someone to believe that, you know, if he's orchestrated all things, even the wicked things that occur, well, then maybe he's not righteous. Or in Romans 6, what, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Why do you think he was asked that question? Because when he preaches the fullness of God's grace and justification by faith, what are wicked men inclined to do? Well, well, if it's just believe on Jesus, then that means we can go out and sin and sin and sin, and that'll just open up an opportunity for more of God's grace. Paul dealt with our, uh, objections to his preaching, and, and Jesus did too. So notice in 660, this, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Now, now, Jesus doesn't do what would be perhaps a temptation for some. Yeah, they're not ready for this. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about, you know, the, the, the weather or the favorite sports teams. I'm going to change direction because I don't want to offend these guys. Verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, and I think disciples is used broadly there, not as blood-bought children of God, but as those who at least for a time followed Jesus. Uh, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who, could, who would betray him. And he said, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father." Do you see that? He doubles down. He doesn't try to finagle his way out of it. Oh, I've created a religious you know, enigma, so I've got to try to soften the blow. No, he doubles down with the blow to tell them what the problem is. Again, sometimes sinners need to be carpet bombed so they'll see the reason for the cross. And then over in Romans chapter 8, you've got the twin concepts of depravity and inability. Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So we've got total depravity. It is not subject to the law of God. Total inability, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh, again, note the language, cannot please God. The language there, cannot please God, is redemptively. It's, it's in terms of, you know, acceptance with God. If you are a neighbor to your neighbor, is, is God happier if you help him cut his grass or you help an old lady walk across the street? Yeah, yeah, I mean, he doesn't want you to jump on her and kick her and that sort of thing. But the, the language here is in a redemptive context. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So then back to the confession, it deals with actual sins committed by sinners in paragraph 4, but it, it ends the chapter with the doctrine of remaining corruption. In other words, what about the believer? Is the believer, after he believes, immediately confirmed in righteousness? Is the believer, after he believes, in a state wherein he cannot sin? You know as well as I do the answer to that question. No, it doesn't mean that at all. 
Well, does the Bible teach that? Yes, the Bible teaches that, and the divines hit on that. Notice in ver uh, paragraph 5, this corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. That's why we call it remaining corruption. It's not reigning, it's not ruling, it's rather remaining. There's a distinction. The unconverted has reigning sin. The converted has remaining sin. We just sang it, prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love. So the confession here is doing something that the Bible does. This corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin. So the confession wants to, to make sure that you understand that, that though Christ has atoned for your sins, it's not okay for you to sin. Sanctification necessarily follows justification. You're accepted in the beloved because of his finished work, because of his life of righteousness, but that doesn't condone or, or do away with the fact that in terms of your filial relationship with God, in terms of his fatherly pleasure or displeasure, you, by grace and by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, ought to pursue holiness. You ought to perfect holiness in the fear of God, according to 2 Corinthians 7.1. Pursue holiness without which no man will see the Lord, Hebrews 12.14. So it's not mitigating the reality of remaining sin and the fact that it does bring several hindrances. It does bring uh, displeasure. It does bring earthly sorrows. It does bring consequences. That's the grim reality. And, and David, king of Israel, is a great reminder of that, as is the apostle Peter in the New Testament. Both men were walking with God. Both men were righteous. Both men are holy. Both men had known the imputed righteousness of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. And yet both men sin against God in a particular way that brought consequences vis-a-vis -vis in the house of David. I mean, God announces that. He atones for his sin, but there's going to be a sword that does not depart from your home. There's an effect for that or a consequence for that particular sin. Same with Peter. And so the confession ends there in order, I think, to cause us to reflect and to cause us to, 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 to be encouraged that we're not alone. Paul pens this, Romans 7, 14, uh, 13 to 25. You can read that on your own. Galatians 5, 17, the accounts of David, the account of, of Peter. It, it, it's an encouragement in the sense that, yeah, we should be a lot holier, but this is somewhat normal. There is remaining corruption. And again, I'm not saying this so you go out and sin. I'm not suggesting that at all. But I remember when I first got converted, perhaps this was your experience. You had a friend that led you to the Savior, and that friend seemed way holier than you were. And you were wondering, this doesn't seem right. I'm a believer now, and yet I still got all these problems. Well, again, the, the comfort of a Romans 7 and a Galatians 5 is the comfort theologically, the comfort the re and the reality that Christ has atoned for your sins. The emphasis is still seek by God's grace and by the Spirit to put to death those things. And I think as well, this is a, a helpful preventative to the doctrine of Pharisaism. We need to understand, we're very charitable with ourselves in the doctrine of remaining corruption. We're not as charitable, charitable with our fellows in the doctrine of remaining corruption. Well, you know, I've got this remaining corruption. I don't always do what I'm supposed to do. Well, neither does your wife. Neither does your husband. Neither does your friend. 
I can't believe you sinned against me. You really can't believe she sinned against you? Really? You really can't believe he sinned against you? You really can't believe there's still these foibles, these problems, these challenges? You can't believe that there's a continuum in terms of sanctification? We're not to be Pharisees. We're not to be those guys that parade through the churches and bring our, you know, our weight to bear upon each and every one of them, and they don't measure up. We need to understand that justification is a one-time act by a gracious God, and sanctification is progress. And there are times in the Christian life that there are ebbs and there are flows. There are valleys and there are summits. Not as many summits as we would like, but there are those challenges. So if we're going to be charitable to ourselves and find some degree of encouragement in a Romans 7 and a Galatians 5, again, not so that we may sin, that grace may abound, but the fact that, when, that this is a reality experienced by God's people. Let us be charitable to our fellows. Let us be kind and loving to our brothers and sisters. And let us not demand a, a, you know, a, a pound of flesh for every infraction that they engage, all the while indulging ourselves because of the doctrine of remaining corruption, it affects all of us. And we need to be gracious one to another and understand that this corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly set. So I guess I'm saying we should never be surprised. We shouldn't condone it, obviously. But, you know, honey, I can't believe you sinned against me. I just can't believe it. Again, really? You can't believe it? Do you know your own heart? Do you know your own proneness to wander? Do you know your own proneness to leave the God that you love? We need to extend charity and grace and love. Well, let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time and study. Thank you for the word of God and the fact that our confession basically follows that, that rule, that standard, that infallible guide. We thank you for the Lord's Day. We thank you for the prospect of corporate worship. We pray that you would bless our time as we worship and may it be in spirit and truth. And may you fill our brother Ryan with the Holy Spirit and cause us as well to, to know his presence and power that we may receive with glad hearts your word. And we pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.